name, would you stand with us as we enter into this evening of worship, of reflection on the beauty and power of the cross of Christ.
Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight, this evening, to worship, to reflect, and even to celebrate. Because on a Friday, the day before the Passover Sabbath, the Lamb of God was slain. His blood was shed for the remission of our sins. And so we call this day Good Friday because it's good news that God made a way that his children could be right with him. Jesus paid the penalty. Jesus took our punishment. Jesus was momentarily separated from his father as he bore our sins on his body so that we would not have to be eternally separated from the father. He came out of love for us. And what a privilege tonight to be able to just think back and say thank you, Lord. To think back and say, although our lamb suffered silently, he didn't open his mouth. Pilate said, I, I find no fault in him. And although he suffered silently, the just for the unjust, the Bible records at least seven statements that he made while on the cross. Jesus was on the cross for approximately six hours bearing our sin. And as he was on the cross, he spoke several statements that seven disciples are going to reflect on tonight. The seven witnesses, seven believers, seven Christ followers are going to reflect on tonight. Tonight, Chandler Bell is going to share from Luke 23, 34, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Following Chandler, Miss Eileen Stallard is going to share from Luke 23, 43, when the Lamb of God said, today you will be with me in paradise. Following Eileen, Brother Randy Dowell is going to come and share from John 19, where Jesus said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Behold your mother, as he spoke to John. Following Randy, Sister Viva is going to share from Matthew 27, where Jesus said, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Our worship team is going to come back up for another song after that. And then Miss Tanisha is going to share from John 19, I thirst, followed by Rachel Knox, who will share, It is finished. And finally, Brother James is going to give us a word from Luke 23. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
We've asked each speaker to take five to seven minutes to share their heart. And afterwards, they're going to blow out one candle, leading all the way up to the seventh speaker who will blow out the final candle. And when the final candle is blown out, the room is going to go uh, partially dark. And I think it's fitting that even today, it's somewhat dreary outside. It's a little dark because the Bible lets us know that for the final three hours on the cross, the earth went dark as Jesus hung. So this room is going to go partially dark as we have the worship team lead us in one final song. Were you there? And after they sing that song, the room is going to go all Because it's important for us to sit in the moment as much as we can. This is a solemn moment. If you notice the black cloth on the cross signifying death, it's a solemn moment. But you know how they say in television, but stay tuned because there's more. Because in churches all across this city, this state, the country, the, the world are going to celebrate that he's risen. And on Sunday in this church, that cloth is going to change. So you have to be here Sunday to see what color it's going to be. But we're going to sit in this tonight. So I'm asking you, when we come to the end of this worship service, out of respect for the Lamb, so that we all might again take introspection that we wouldn't talk at the end of this. That when this service ends, I'm going to ask that in silence we all depart and we go to our cards and we don't speak until we get into our cards if we speak then. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to minister to us that we could thank God for the lamb. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your plan of salvation. Thank you that you determined from before the foundation of the world that the lamb of God, your son Jesus, would be slain in our place. before Adam and Eve even came into the world and before they sinned and before death passed upon all of us, you already had the solution. Calvary shows us how merciful and kind and loving you are to all of us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit because without him, we cannot glorify the Son. We can't know you. We can't worship you. So, Holy Spirit, uh, would you do what only you can do and allow us to have communion with the Father? Would you allow us to see the Son this evening? As we hear these words spoken by your children, may we put ourselves there in the crowd 2,000 years ago. May we see him there. 
Oh God, have your way. Meet us in this moment. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. What first came to mind as I read this verse was that this was a statement of forgiveness for the actions of the people who caused the crucifixion. As I was thinking this, I had to ask myself, what exactly is Jesus asking God to forgive? What did they do? Well, first, the chief priests and elders had Jesus arrested and placed him under trial, despite the fact that he had done nothing wrong. They falsely accused him. Luke 23, 2 says, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Only one of these claims are true, the statement that he is Messiah, a king. They spit on him and slapped him. Matthew 26, 67 through 68 say, Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? In this moment, the soldiers are not only beating him, but are also disrespecting and rejecting who Christ is. He was flogged. Matthew 27, 26 says, then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Jesus was perfect. Yet they treated him like a criminal who deserved severe punishment. He was treated like the worst of the worst, and he was sentenced instead of the true felon. They placed on him a purple robe and on his head a crown of thorns, and then proceeded to beat him and mock him. They forced him to carry his cross while he was exhausted, dehydrated, and in a lot of pain, and it was so heavy that they had to have someone else help him, Simon from Cyrene. The soldiers took and divided up his clothes. He was insulted, sneered at, and mocked by the crowd. They nailed his hands and feet to the cross, and they crucified him. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. That means that Jesus forgave them too. He wouldn't have asked someone else to forgive them if he hadn't done the action first. When Peter asked Jesus in Matthew 18 if he should forgive his brother only up to seven times, Jesus tells him no, 70 times, seven times. He exemplified that message on the cross. He wouldn't have taught it if he wasn't going to live out his words. Jesus also said they don't know what they're doing. He could be referring to the fact that maybe they didn't know that they were sinning, but it could also mean that they didn't know the magnitude of what they were doing and the magnitude of their sin. Despite all of the suffering and torture they put Jesus through, he still forgave them. They beat him and whipped him. He was slandered and scorned. They put nails through each of his hands and feet and made him hang for hours. And in the end, he died. And through all of this, through all of the pain and agony, he was innocent. All of these things, and yet he still forgave them. 
he didn't wait for them to have remorse, regret, or guilt. Jesus forgave them even as they continued to mock him, continued to insult him, and continued to sneer at him. The magnitude of their sin was great, but the magnitude of his forgiveness was so much greater. The interesting thing is, out of the seven last sayings, this was the first. One of his first thoughts on the cross was not on him and his pain, but on them and their hearts, on us and our hearts. You see, the they he refers to is not just the crowd. It's not just the soldiers or religious leaders who accused him and killed him. It's the world. He carried the weight of the world's sin on him as he hung on the cross. He didn't just die out of his love for them. It was out of his love for us, too. Time and time again, we turn our backs on him and act like the crowd. And just like he did with the crowd, he forgives us anyway. Jesus had forgiven them before they came to him apologizing. And he forgives us the same way. God has his forgiveness ready. He's just waiting for us to come to him and accept his gift. Out of his love for us, he died. And because of his death on the cross, we can have that forgiveness. We can be made clean, and all of our sins can be washed away. Because of his sacrifice, no sin is unforgivable. No mistake we make is so awful that it can't be forgiven by God. And nothing we do is so bad that it won't be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. His forgiveness is just that great, that incredible. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He himself forgave the crowd for putting him through suffering, and he forgives us too. There is hope to be found because, of our, because our sins are washed away by his gift of forgiveness. Thank you. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. We see a, on the picture here of Jesus who's hung, hung on the cross between two criminals. Imagine the scene. Two men who are equally close to death. Two men who are also equally close to Christ. One was on one side, one was on the other. But we see two totally different responses. One reviled Jesus, made fun of him, mocked him. Verse 40 through 41 shows us another picture. The other criminal, he repented. And we hear his cry of faith. This man had little to pin his hope on, his faith on. Maybe he had heard about Jesus and seen the miracles that he'd performed. Or maybe he had just heard the things that Jesus said on the cross. Maybe he had just seen the sign that hung about above his head about Jesus being the king of the Jews. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it does tell us some things about this criminal. You know, he was a, a thief, the Bible tells us, and he knew that he was a sinner and that he was suffering justly. He also showed repentance. He rebuked the other criminal and said, hey, you know, we're, we deserve to die, but this man doesn't deserve anything. 
And he also, we hear his cry of faith. As he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In fact, this criminal showed greater faith than the disciples. Where were they? They had abandoned him. Um, And then we hear the, the voice of Jesus as he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say, go get baptized. He didn't say, clean up your act. He didn't say, give money to the church or to the poor. He didn't say, do good things. If all any of those things were necessary for him to be with Jesus in heaven, he couldn't have received any of it because he couldn't do anything, just like we can't do anything. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If we have to earn our salvation by any good works that we did, none of us would be saved. Uh, but Jesus, who's anxious to save, said to this criminal, today you'll be with me in paradise. That comforting word of assurance. You know, Jesus said today. That tells us that he knew that his death and also these criminals' death was imminent. You know, sometimes criminals would hang on the cross for days before they passed. But Jesus knew that their death was imminent. And he said, today, um, Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that when a believing soul um, is separated from their body, it immediately goes to be present with the Lord. And this criminal's body, it might have hung on the cross for a few more hours, or it may have been in the grave very soon. But his eternal soul, once it was separated from his body, went straight to be with the Lord. Um, Last year, uh, my husband uh, was dying with cancer, and he spent his last week in hospice. And as he was nearing death, we had uh, Pandora playing in the background with some uh, instrumental hymns playing, you know, to, uh, to give us peace in our soul as my husband was getting closer to death. And then all of a sudden, uh, a voice started singing, and it was uh, from Pandora, but it was Chris Rice's song, Untitled Hymn, and it came on. And the first verse says, Come to Jesus. And that's where every believer's journey starts. We come to Jesus. That's what this criminal did. He came to Jesus in repentance and faith. That's how my husband got saved. That's how I got saved. Every believer comes to Jesus in faith. And then when it got to the last verse, it says, And with your final heartbeat, kiss the world goodbye, then go in peace and laugh on glory's side and fly to Jesus. And that's exactly when my husband, that's exactly when he passed. Um, And that's what he did. His soul was separated from his body, but his soul flew to Jesus. You know, and this can be true of you tonight. Maybe you don't know Jesus as your Savior. You have the first step, come to Jesus tonight. Come to him for salvation. And then you can have the comfort and the assurance that one day when your soul is separated from your body, you don't have to fear. You'll fly to Jesus. Today... Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise.
John 19, 26 and 27. Jesus says, woman, behold your son. And to his disciple John, he says, behold your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Two simple directions in such a subtle moment, such a subtle moment. But this, this small moment should rock our world. It goes without saying that Jesus had a hard job, right? I mean, some of us have hard jobs. We think we have hard jobs. Jesus had a hard job. As he hangs on the cross, he's completing the most challenging, the most difficult, the most important job in all of history. In fact, it's the most important task in all of space and time. He's doing the work of salvation. And all eyes, then and now, are on him. This man, our Lord, had been a teacher, a preacher, and a leader. Multitudes believed in him, followed him, gathered around him, and hung on his every word. And yet here he is on the cross. He's beaten, he's tortured, and he's mocked. He's all of these things. And at the same time, Jesus is on a mission. He's got a job. He's focused. And in these final moments, he pauses from his task. He pauses from the most important work. And he looks up and he sees in front of him his mother and his friend. And here in this moment, looking at his mother and his friend with this important work to finish, he sets an example for all of us. He stops. And in the most thoughtful and kind way possible, he considers their needs above his own. In a moment when any one of us would be tempted to be selfish, Jesus shows us what it looks like to be selfless. Selflessness looks like love. Jesus loves and takes care of his mother, right? By asking John to take care of her, he's taking care of her needs through her old, old age. And at the same time, he's giving John companionship, I like to think. And in this gesture, this final act before finishing the work of salvation, he not only ensures that John will care for his mother's needs, he also gives us all a model for how to behave in times of pain, fear, and stress. We should be selfless, not selfish. We should love. We should take our gaze off of ourselves. We should take our gaze off of our pain, our needs, and our fears. And we should think about and take care of those around us. For me, sometimes, especially on Sunday afternoons when there's a lot of work to do, selfishness and stress can take me over. I focus on the work week ahead and my stresses and worries uh, to come instead of focusing on my family that's right in front of me. 
But Jesus gives us a different model. As he hangs on the cross in unthinkable pain and duress, he puts his flesh aside. He focuses on who is right in front of him. He looks at his mother, Mary, and he has compassion for her. He loves her and becomes selfless and puts her needs first. He says, woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, he says, behold your mother. He pauses before finishing his work of salvation, and he loves the people in front of him. In his final moments of pain and suffering, Jesus selflessly makes time for love. No matter the stresses we face in life, whether it's work or anything else, we should follow his example and love the people in front of us. So when the worries creep in and the fear creeps in and the stresses of the week ahead or the day ahead come to me, I'm going to do my best to set them aside. I'm going to do my best to love the people in front of me, to hug my wife and my kids and be patient with them, and to have compassion for them, to be selfless, not selfish. We can all do that because that's the example our Savior has set. Matthew 27, 46 says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As a deity and in his humanity, Jesus had never felt the spiritual separation, the loneliness and the pain that accompanies sin. But 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. So when he accepted the sin the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. When it had been placed on him, the darkness of that burden was massive, but that disconnection from God was unbearable. When I was invited to reflect on this scripture, it immediately evoked memories of times in my life when I felt that I'd been failed, when I felt abandoned or even discarded. But before I share my experience, I think it's, it's sort of important for me to frame the foundation of my story. You see, my name is Viva, which means live in Spanish. The story I typically tell people is that it's a family name that came from my father's grandmother, which is true, uh, but there's more to it. You see, when I was conceived, my parents were married, but I was a special surprise from the Lord. <laughs> my father hit a crossroads in his life, even though he was enrolled in seminary. And he decided, as he woke up one day, I'm tired of being good. He developed a heroin addiction and was abusive to my mother in all forms. After learning of her pregnancy, she weighed whether or not it was fair to bring a child into such a tumultuous situation. As she contemplated aborting me, Mama says the Holy Spirit spoke clearly to her and commanded live. I'm happy she obeyed.
they later divorced and she remarried and I had a great example of what a father is supposed to be. Now, I don't remember a time in my life without considering Jesus Lord. My mother was a strong Christian and had children's Bibles, magazines, trivia games, and basically any other Jesus publication you can think of in the house. <laughs> Family Bible studies, assigned memory verses, and daily prayers were standard, and on top of that, we were very involved in church and spent four to five days a week there. So, when I was about six years old, I officially asked Jesus to be my savior. I distinctly recall my mom and other church members questioning whether or not I understood the gravity of my commitment at such a young age, which sort of irritated me. So it was kind of sort of, they were complicating it. I said, I, I believed in him. I knew he was, he was Mary's son. He was Jesus' son. I mean, he's God's son, right? That he died for our sins. I believed in him and I wanted him, I wanted to walk with him and follow him for my whole life. I wanted to be obedient. So I was a happy kid that had a lot of energy, made straight A's and had perfect attendance. I was a state and county champion in track, FCA officer, class president, and went to governor's school and a whole lot of other stuff, right? Now, I say that not to boast on, on who I was, but to paint the picture of somebody who wasn't really in love with themselves, even though they loved the Lord. You see, I, start, I sought external validation through accomplishments, struggled with believing I was enough, and developed an eating disorder. My senior year in high school, I had a full scholarship to Ohio State and had it all planned out. Um, but that summer, a couple months before starting school, my dad told me he had cancer. He asked me to stay close by in case something happened and I needed to come back home for my mom. Now, I begrudgingly agreed, and two months before starting SEAL, I said I retracted my acceptance to OSU and became a Tennessee Vol. Now, stepping on the campus of, of Tennessee in August of 2002, I was the good girl who'd never tasted alcohol and it pledged to remain pure. I was sexually assaulted a month after being at school and only told my core group of about three friends. I became rebellious and angry that God had not healed my dad who had lived a life of service to others. But you couldn't see this outwardly. See, I still presented as a bubbly person and maintained a 4.0, but internally I was conflicted and I was embittered. My dad died in February of my freshman year and my biological father passed about a year later. I became even more disenchanted wondering why my sovereign God would not answer my pleas, reward my faith and hope and deliver healing. I couldn't understand why God wasn't following society's rules right, of good things coming to people who do good. I practiced superficial prayers and attended church services just like I'd been raised were sort of obligatory, right? But I wondered, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Angry that my purity promise had been broken without my consent and infuriated with the unfairness of life, I felt betrayed by God. I lived outside my calling to be a holy vessel and Despite my attempts to build emotional and spiritual walls, I still felt an overwhelming sense of grace, though, hearing the Lord's call, my child, my child, why have you forsaken me? I eventually forged ahead in my spiritual walk, and at 24, I married a man with whom I'd been friends for half my life. We had a quick courtship and vowed to wait until we were married to consummate our relationship, and he just graduated from seminary and was enrolled in grad school in Boston. Uh, so my family moved my belongings up there about a week before our wedding, but hours after exchanging vows, a Lifetime or Tyler Perry movie unfolded. Three months into our marriage, he recognized he was only in love with the idea of me, questioned his sexual preference, and decided he didn't want to be married, enrolled in school, or work. With a couple days notice, he decided to leave and moved across the country. Um, so I was left over a thousand miles away from my friends and family, 
with a checking account that only carried double digits, a savings account that had been cleared out, and I felt defeated and alone. In tears of emotional anguish, I cried out again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I suppose I still felt some misguided entitlement as a Christian, right? As a waiver from bad experiencing habits. This time I didn't rebel. I just became a little withdrawn and carried a slight spiritual grudge. So in my next relationship, I disregarded the biblical principles governing intimacy and dated a man who was apparently leading a double life. Now, this time, I learned my lesson. I immediately submitted, hands up, embraced the Lord's mercy through my heartache and praised him for the beautiful blessing named Eva that emerged from it. But when I began dividing the scripture this week, I gained a new perspective. You see, Jesus was quoting scriptures in all of these seven phrases. He was doing it to identify his fulfillment of the scripture as the Messiah. So when Jesus uttered the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's going back to Psalm 22. I hadn't read this really before. I think I just skipped over it to get to the 23rd. In the interest of time, I'll only share a few verses, which is from the New Living Translation. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. You are holy. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. Skipping down to verse 10. I was thrust into your arms at my birth. You have been my God from the moment I was born. Do not stay far from me. For trouble is near and no one else can help me. 19 says, oh Lord, do not stay far away. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. So in this song, David expresses his trust in God despite his circumstances. Throughout the psalm, he foreshadows details of the crucifixion. Then he petitions God's help and deliverance in the face of persecution. But he confidently resolves to praise God and declare that God has heard his prayer. I don't think Jesus was only expressing the words of agonizing abandonment. Rather, he's confidently declaring his faith in the Lord and his commitment to his vow. By reciting this verse, Jesus was declaring that in the midst of his persecution and exhaustion, my God was still present, powerful and faithful. Jews present would have understood the song reference. Now, God's apparent silence can feel excruciating when you're utterly broken and helpless, longing for his reprieve, right? Right, longing for his, for his comfort. But when we experience trials that result in feeling despised, rejected, afflicted, ridiculed, conflicted, taunted, alone, and deep in despair, remember that God is ever-present. We praise who he is 
remember what he has done for you and others before and around you and recommit to him. For the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. Even if we're not delivered from the situation, we will be restored at the proper time. Even when I neglected or rejected him, my God remained faithful to me. He was alongside me in my pain, even loving me through my foolery, unwillingness to submit, imperfection, unforgiveness, haughtiness, recklessness, doubt, and failure. In the dark days and nights that are sure to come in my life's journey now, when my human nature begins to question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When fear, pain, or misery tempt, to abandon, tempt me to abandon him or my vows, my response will be that God is holy, he is powerful, and his unfathomable infinite wisdom. My strength, resilience, and peace and unspeakable joy have resulted from my brokenness. This suffering is redemptive.
this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished and that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now, initially, after reading the scripture, it brought me to two questions, which are, what did Jesus thirst for and why was Jesus thirsty? And I came up with three points, which are humanity, salvation, and soul. So starting with humanity, Jesus thirst was his body's natural response to his suffering. I think we often tend to forget that before Jesus died, he was human just like all of us are. When we eat, when we work out, when we play sports, we get thirsty. Anytime we're active, um, we become thirsty. Most importantly, when we get dehydrated, um, which is when our bodies don't consume the proper amounts of fluids that it needs, our brain signals thirst. Jesus had many open body wounds, which means he lost plenty of blood. He went without food and drink for hours. So I'm sure his body was very weak, fatigued, as well as dehydrated. He was physically beaten with the staff before he was even crucified. He was physically nailed to the cross by his hands and feet. Not to mention he carried his own cross, which was stated in John 1917. So I think it's safe to conclude that the brother was tired. He was physically tired, weak, wounded, but most of all, his body was thirsty because he was human. Secondly, salvation. Jesus thirsted for our salvation. His food was to do the will of his father. I believe that Jesus gained a sense of comfort knowing why he was going through his suffering which was to save all of us. He was adamant about enduring such excruciating pain so he could fulfill his mission. But how do we know that he wasn't afraid to give up his body? How do we know that he was actually adamant about his sacrifice? In Matthew 27:34, it states, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. Back then, um, vinegar wine mixed with gall or myrrh was used as an anodyne to those who were crucified, and it would make them insensible to pain. So let's just look at the substance as morphine. So morphine can treat moderate or severe pain. Most of the time when a person is transitioning, um, it acts as a painkiller, and it makes them comfortable um, during their transition. So Jesus knew that if he did drink the wine, that it would ease his pain and kill him. But the fact that Jesus rejected anything that would numb his suffering lets me know that he was a jeep. He was dead. <laughs> <laughs> but what makes it so special is that he endured it all for our salvation. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, 
and by his stripes we are healed. So we can conclude that Jesus was thirsty for our salvation. We are healed, delivered, and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Lastly, soul. Jesus' soul was thirsty for his father. I think that when Jesus said, I'm thirsty, that it was, it was his cry out to God saying, come get me. Jesus is like, I've been faithful. I've lived a perfect life. I've done everything that you've asked me to do. And he knew that once he had partaken the wine, it would ease his pain and eventually kill him, which is why he waited. He waited until all had been completed, like the scripture says, before he even drunk the wine. His soul yearned for his father. He had pretty much taken all that he could take. But he finished his sacrifice. At that point, he's like, Pops, yo, I'm ready to go. Come get me. But I love the fact that Jesus never once complained about being the sacrifice. He didn't hesitate. He didn't try to bargain with God. And he never tried to put his calling on someone else. God spoke to him, and he listened. He was obedient. Not only was he obedient in fulfilling God's will, he never once focused on his wounds or the mental or physical condition that he was in. His focus was on completion. His focus was on obeying his father. He knew that he was the son of a king. He knew how powerful and majestic that his father was. So he had every reason to be confident, courageous, and brave to endure what he went through on the cross, which is why he never once focused on his wounds. And I think we can learn a lot from Jesus. Sometimes we focus too much on our wounds and not the healer of our wounds. We go through so many things in life, and we spend a lot of time worrying about how we're going to get through our storms and obstacles, how we're going to get out of depression, how we're going to make it after losing a loved one, how we're going to provide for our families after we've lost our jobs, how we're going to let go of the hurt or pain that someone has caused us, how we're going to forgive that absent mother or father, how we're going to forgive the person who abused us verbally, physically, or sexually. All of these are wounds, and I'm sure many of us are hurting and wounded right now. But let's be like Jesus and focus on our mission and what God has called us to do, opposed to worrying about the things that God has complete control over, because he has complete control over our wounds. He is our band-aid. Let's be so focused on God, who is the wound healer, that our wounds become numb as if we just got tipsy off the wine that they tried to give Jesus back on the cross. <laughs> Let's be so focused on God. I said that already. <laughs> Let's put so much energy and attention to what God has called us to do. Instead of being the wounded, let's acknowledge ourselves as the healed. Like Jesus, let's remember that we are sons and daughters of a king. We have no reason to worry. We have no reason to fret. But we have every reason to be courageous and brave and confident to endure every obstacle and storm in our lives. So like Jesus, 
Let's be thirsty for the one true king. John 19.30, therefore, when Jesus has received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. Three words that in the original Greek comes down to one word. The one word is tetelestai or tetelestai. And it's funny because when I think about this, I kind of am drawn to something that my family knows very well, um, and that is kind of a trigger warning that they know when they're in the room with me and we're watching a sporting event and someone comes on at the end and they're like, what does this win mean to you? And the person's like, it means everything. Mama's going to go crazy because it doesn't. It does not mean everything. This word means everything. So, when you think about one word that means everything to the believer, it is finished. In the English, in the Greek, one word. So, I started kind of breaking that down in the Greek. What does that mean? So, I'm going through the Greek dictionary. I'm trying to figure out what does that mean. It means paid in full. So let's also talk about what it means in the culture at the time. All right? So when that word, which is actually a common word in the culture, was used, shepherds used it to identify sheep that they thought would qualify as sacrificial sheep. They were spotless. They were pure. To tell us that. Priests used it within the temple when the sheep qualified to tell us that. But what a lot of scholars really think is that when Jesus said this particular word, he was actually talking to the way that the Greek culture used the word. Because remember, in his death, he didn't just die for the believer, he died for the world hoping that all would come to him, hoping that all would believe. He offered his blood to everyone. So he made this appeal in a way in Greek culture that everyone who heard it would understand that he's saying paid in full. So in secular Greek culture, the way that they would understand that word is my debt has been paid perfectly in full. They even would stamp this word on receipts and hand it out. Paid in full. You're good. Paid in full. Now, this is where it gets kind of crazy awesome good, right? The word is in the perfect tense. I mean, of course, right? It's Jesus, right? It's in the perfect tense. What that means is it's not only paid in full here, it's paid in full in the past, it's paid in full in the present, and it's paid in full in the future. 
So what that means is my past sins are forgiven, my present sins are forgiven, and my future sins are forgiven. So as I was digesting (laughs) all of that, just getting through the Greek dictionary of what that means, my mind really went into so many different directions. Really, the spirit just kind of took me into so many directions. And one of the things that kept surfacing was, when you think about this word, Rachel, originally when you thought about this word, when you thought about those final minutes for the Lord, when you thought about what he accomplished, a lot of it came back to me. My sin was forgiven. I could be with him forever in heaven. And what I felt like he kept pressing on me is, oh, no, 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 no. This isn't about you. This is about me. This is about Jesus. So where he took me from there was to what happened at the same moment that he said, it is finished. Matthew 27, 51 says, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. We're talking about the temple now. We're talking about a curtain that they say Greek, I mean, um, Hebrew, it's in Hebrew scholarship. It's not necessarily in the Bible, but when you go back to some of the earliest Hebrew writings, they're saying that there's evidence that this veil was as thick as four inches, about the palm of a man's hand, was torn in two from top to bottom. It was a veil, a curtain that separated the holy from holies from the rest of the temple. The priest would go in there one time a year with the sacrifice that he would sacrifice on behalf of all the people one time a year every year for over a thousand years. So, as you can imagine, a veil is torn, ripped in two. Ripped in two from top to bottom. I mean, you can't miss that symbolism. Ripped in two from top to bottom. I love how Hebrews expounds upon this. Therefore, brethren... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great power over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So, we now know that the curtain was torn. The curtain is a symbol of his body. For all that would believe and trust in Jesus, when you walk through, you are walking through his flesh. His blood is now coming down, encircling, encompassing you, not necessarily covering your sin, it's taking your sin away. To where now, when you approach the Lord, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. 
Eternal security, proof, right here. Because you can't get the blood off. You can't get the blood off, right? I mean, so you have walked through. The blood is now on you when you decide to trust in Jesus in that moment. His blood is on you to where when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And because this word has a much broader, fuller meaning with a future implication, the way I like to think about it is, although that blood has covered me and has presented me as pure and forgiven, because remember, I mean, why was that? Why do we need that? Because God is holy. Because he demanded justice. He did not change in that moment. He changed us. So now I'm covered in his blood. He doesn't see Rachel. He sees his son. And from that moment on, in the fullness of this word, a holy blood transfusion starts. And so now in me, the author and perfecter of my faith, with, which actually that word, perfecter, has the same root word as finished. The author and perfecter of my faith is bringing the good work he started in me into completion, into you. So, as I kind of was trying to, to kind of wrap up, bring this into a close, I just really couldn't find another way to do that better than Galatians 2.20. That says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So, we gain heaven, we gain forgiveness of sins. Those are not trite, insignificant things, but much more important, we gain Jesus. And not only that relationship, but he literally indwells us, changing us, bringing us into a fuller, more complete picture of the Imago Day that he originally created because of the deposit that he put in us. kind of amazing that think about this all these words have given us an ability now to be different time for us to put this thing into interaction it's amazing that you no know, we wait until easter and christmas to get serious about our relationship with christ uh, we give up things for a few days for lent then we pick them right back up easter lilies would fill the churches on sunday they bloom once a year meaning they come to church with 
Big Mama and Aunt Ray Ray and Uncle Susu and, and once a year and, and where this thing should be an all-time thing. Is that right? And, and see, has he not proven enough to us that he is that God to leave us, to keep us, to put us into action? Luke 23, 46 says, And when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having this, he breathed his last. That, that left with us the greatest coach ever. That's the Holy Spirit. That, that changed the game. You realize that, right? That changed everything about that we do on this earth. He, he has us placed in the right job, has us placed in the right place, in the right town, so we can put this thing into action right now. And, and so if you look at this, man, it's a res we have a responsibility because of all those seven statements that he has put us put through. Of all those statements that he said, he, he willingly gave his life to Christ. He's given us a great example of how we should be. And so what am I challenging you to do? We must understand that this comes from Psalms 31 and 5. It says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, you have redeemed me. Isn't that wonderful? You have redeemed me, and oh, Lord, God of truth. See, Jesus' finest word from the cross was a quotation from that scripture. It expressed his faith. Uh, it expressed his relationship with God. It, it, it made insistent that death in the cross is not the final word. Are you listening to this? You know, and, and so we are, are we willing to dismiss ourselves for him? Uh, are we willing to cry out to him and give up complete control when the last time you really cried out to Jesus Christ? And, and so I, I, wanna, I want you to use your spiritual imagination with me about this Holy Spirit. Because it's like this in football. There's a man sitting up high in a football game that gives the play to a man down on the sideline. Are you listening to me? And, and, and so that man on the sideline sends it to the huddle for one man to get. And so when that one man gets that play, he spreads it in the huddle. Now, everybody in that hollow has heard that play before. Everybody in the hollow has knowledge about that play. And everybody in the hollow knows their responsibility. But here's the key. If they never break the hollow, that, that play means nothing. And, and so if you and I keep this worry balled up inside of us and keep it all, all inside, you know what? If we never get out here and put it in action, this worry means nothing to us. You do realize that. And so here's what I'm thinking that he's really challenging us to do. The first thing is this. It's to submit our lives and to yield to his authority. The, the second thing is this. It's to surrender our lives and to give up completely. And, and then the third thing is to sacrifice our lives. I like Romans 12, 1, man. It's talking about a living sacrifice. See, sacrifice is to deny self of what pleases self in order to do his will. That's what sacrifice is about. And so where we go, what we do advertises what we are, but the most important thing, whose we are. And so when we decide to submit and surrender and sacrifice, it changes the whole perspective about why we, he left us on this earth, why he had to do what he did, because you know what? If he hadn't have did that, where would we be right now? You know, picture yourself. I know we were a physical thing, but if we were standing in front of that cross that day, would our obedience to Jesus be different right now? And so, so, but here's the key thing. We are here because this word is live and real, and it comes to life every time we read this word. And so his words serve for us to, not to be selfish with anger and not be willing to forgive others because we don't think they, for, they deserve to be forgiven. You know, not having the victim mentality. See, those things give Satan a tool to keep you and I distracted to do God's will. Are you listening? And, and so what am I challenging us to do? Take this word. Notice you're redeemed, and you selected to serve. So sometime in our life, we got to break the huddle. And what that does, what the submit, surrender, and sacrifice does, now I'm a visual guy, so I want to show you something. 
So look at this. I weigh 300 and none of your business, pal. And so I'm standing on this word. And so, but here's the key. Regardless of my troubles, when troubles came in my marriage, I stood on this word. And when God saved my marriage because he stood on this word. My wife forgave me of my infidelity because I stood, she stood on this word. Are you listening to me? I don't care how jacked up your marriage is, how tough your job is. If you stand on this word, he'll change everything about you. If you submit, surrender, and sacrifice and stand on this word, he'll change the people in your office. He'll change your family, man. He'll make everything different. God delivered my marriage. You're not listening to me. This word delivered my marriage. That's what it did, see. It should have been gone, but I stood on this word, and I know that Jesus is real. If you're not standing on this word tonight, you're missing out on a glorious thing, man, a glorious thing. True. 